Thanks for joining us for Access Utah today. Today we will revisit my conversation with Thomas Ricks. He's the much-respected former Pentagon correspondent for the Washington Post, a voice much listened to, and he has written a book, Churchill and Orwell, The Fight for Freedom. Thomas Ricks says by the late 1930s, democracy was discredited in many circles, and authoritarian rulers whether communist or fascist, were everywhere in assent. And Rick says that uh, Winston Churchill and George Orwell had the foresight to see clearly that the issue was human freedom. Whatever its coloration, a government that denied its people basic freedoms was a totalitarian menace and had to be resisted. In the end, Rick says, Churchill and Orwell proved to be their age's necessary men. It's interesting history, and it has echoes, as you'll hear, to today. Here's my conversation with Thomas Ricks from October of last year. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Both George Orwell and Winston Churchill came close to death in the mid-1930s. Orwell shot in the neck in a trench line in the Spanish Civil War. Churchill struck by a car in New York City. If they died then, history would scarcely remember them. At the time, Churchill was a politician on the outs, his loyalty to his class and party suspect. Orwell was a mildly successful novelist, to put it generously. No one would have predicted by the, the end of the 20th century they would be considered two of the most important people in British history for having the vision and courage to campaign tirelessly in words and deeds against the totalitarian threat from both the left and the right. In a crucial moment, writes Thomas Ricks, they responded first by seeking the facts of the matter, seeing through the lies and obfuscations, and then acting on their beliefs. Together, to an extent not sufficiently appreciated, they kept the West Compass set toward freedom as its due north. And we're talking of a new book by Thomas Ricks, uh, Churchill and Orwell, The Fight for Freedom. Uh, Thomas Ricks is a former Pentagon correspondent for the Washington Post. He's written five books about the military and America's wars. His bestseller about the Iraq War is titled Fiasco. Thomas Ricks uh, now writes a blog, The Best Defense for Foreign Policy magazine. He joins us for the hour. Thomas Ricks, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. It's great to uh, virtually be in Utah. Uh, yeah, we'd uh, love to have you come in reality, so that maybe we can uh, make that happen. Um, uh, I want to, uh, I guess, to start with, uh, this is an interesting and very timely dual biography of, uh, of sorts. Uh, why Churchill and Orwell? It's funny, when I started, some uh, an old friend of mine, I was telling him about it, and he, told, he said later to his wife, he kind of, boy, you know, shook his head. Poor Tom, he's off there writing about George Orwell, who cares? And then when I finished the book a few years later, he said, I'm amazed, he said, that you somehow landed right in the, in the right spot with great timing. Uh, I came to it because I was interested in the problems of facts and opinion. What happens when people start privileging opinion over fact? When they say, you have your facts, but I have my opinions, and they're just as good. This is not the first time it's happened. It was very big in the 1930s. Uh, the strongest example is in the 1930s, there were a lot of people on the left who were pro-communist, uh, some in America, but especially in Europe. And the thinking went, communism is good, so anything that helps communism is good. So if a lie helps communism, lying is the moral thing to do. And there were similar views on the right with fascists and Nazis. And it was really kind of a majority opinion. When George Orwell, who was a lifelong leftist, a socialist, but an anti-Stalinist, when George Orwell started talking about the importance of facts, he shocked a lot of people, he lost some old friends, he antagonized people on the left, and he found it hard to get his book, Animal Farm, published. In part... Uh, well, let, let's let's back up. Uh, you uh, will be reading another interview that uh, Orwell, and this is skipping ahead in the story, we'll loop back. Um, Orwell ended up on an island in the Hebrides, right? And uh, a little bit paranoid, but but as you say, maybe, maybe there's a little bit of reasons for that paranoia. Yeah. Uh, in fact, he began carrying a pistol for fear of being assassinated by Soviet agents. Uh, and he had known people in Spain who were jailed at the behest of the Soviet Union, which had a very active police, security police and secret police presence in Spain during the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s. He knew people who had been jailed and even executed. 
by uh, Spanish police working with the Soviet KGB, or NKVD, it was, as it was called then. So, yeah, he had some reason to be paranoid. Um, Pro-Stalinist people made trouble for him um, and made it hard for him, as I said, to get his book published. I wonder if we could uh, maybe start uh, uh, with this history the way you do in your book, which is... Both these men, George Orwell and Winston Churchill, uh, came close to death in the 1930s. And as you write, if they'd have died when they had their accidents, or or in the case of uh, of uh, Orwell being shot in the neck, um, they would have been footnotes. Yeah, it, that intrigued me for two reasons. First, um, both these guys were failures for most of the things they did most of their life. And that struck me as a very human story. We are all failures in so many ways in what we try to do in life, who we try to be. So it struck me as just a human story. These people who are now regarded as great men really uh, did not see a lot of success in their life. Arguably, Winston Churchill only had one great year, 1940. And if you're going to have one great year, make it 1940, save Western civilization. Uh, and Orwell really only had success at the end of his life with the great books that people remember now, Animal Farm and 1984. Uh, but he died just a couple of years after uh, finishing writing 1984 at the fairly young age of 46. Uh, so the first thing that intrigued me was their failure. The second thing is that uh, it's fashionable nowadays to disparage the great man theory of history especially among academic historians. And they say, don't look at individual people, look at the big trends, look at the economics, look at the demographics, look at the climate. Uh, I think that's true, but I think there are interesting moments in history when one person makes a huge difference. And Winston Churchill clearly made a huge difference in 1940. Had he not been prime minister, and he became prime minister only in May of 1940, then British history and Western history likely would be very different because the British probably would have had a peace settlement with Nazi Germany by the end of 1940 before America entered World War II. And under that peace treaty, the Germans would have had control, Nazi Germany would have had control of Europe. Uh, that didn't happen really because of one man, Churchill. Had the other candidate to be prime minister, Lord Halifax was um, really pro-settlement. Even after Churchill became prime minister, he continued to argue for peace talks with the Germans. Likewise, Orwell stands up and is one of the few people to really look at totalitarianism and to, to, to look at how power can be abused by government, whether left or right. And he's one of the first people to really see the nature of the intrusive state, at a time when a lot of people think communism and fascism are opposites, he says, no, they're just manif different manifestations of the same thing, which is government control of the individual. And he says, that is the key question of our time. Uh, and I think he was right. You write in your afterward that it's, uh, it's very difficult to... Uh, to refuse to run with the herd is generally harder than it looks, and to break with the most powerful among the herd requires unusual depth of character and clarity of mind. You go on to, to write that uh, usually in, in a crisis we, we want to avoid, we don't want to search out the facts, and uh, that can leave us prone to uh, doing whatever the herd's doing, right, or, or whatever the tribe is, is doing. These two men broke with that, and, and they each paid a price. I wonder if you could uh, talk a bit about that. They were both critical of their own classes, which is important, um, and they both broke with clever opinion. It's interesting if you start with Churchill on this. Churchill is a conservative. Uh, he's an aristocrat. He's a Tory. He comes from the wealthy background uh, of upper-class England. And upper-class England in the 1930s was surprisingly pro-fascist and even sympathetic to the Germans. Uh, there were people who thought that the choice was fascism or communism, Nazism being a variant of fascism, and that we had to make that choice, and they chose fascism. Churchill stands up very early in the 1930s. The first time he gives a speech about this in the House of Commons is 1933. And he says, 
no. This is not the way to go. The choice is not fascism or communism. The choice is, do we protect the right of the individual and individual liberties, or do we surrender them to the right of the left? And he gets up and he says, the fact of the matter is that Nazi Germany is rearming. People didn't want to hear that. He was, when he said that, he was going against the policy of his own party, the conservative party, and they were the party in government. So it was British government policy to appease Germany, to say, okay, let's give them little bits and pieces of Europe. Let's give them concessions. Let them take the Rhineland. Let them take part of Czechoslovakia. Let them take the rest of Czechoslovakia. And Churchill is saying no, but it's not popular. It is not the dominant opinion. And for it, for expressing those opinions, he finds himself isolated from his own party and his own class. He is kept out of government. He is mocked in the House of Commons. And he's generally seen as a washed-up, foolish old blowhard. Uh, he had never been prime minister. He doesn't become prime minister until May 1940 at the age of 65. So that's Churchill on the right, um, breaking with his own party and his own class. Orwell does something different or something similar, but, but his own, from his own different perspective as a leftist when he breaks with the, the communist role and says, no, uh, I, I'm not going to be in lockstep with Stalinism. I, re I reserve the right to think as an individual. And if that makes me an enemy of the Soviet Communist Party, so be it. It was a dangerous position to take. It was unpopular to take. And one lesson I draw from looking at both of these guys that kind of makes me optimistic about today is to look to people in our own time, in our own time of political turbulence, a time when people are privileging opinion over fact, and look at the people who are willing to criticize their own side. Uh, we saw this over the last few days with uh, Senator Flake of Arizona, previously uh, with um, the senator from Tennessee, uh, whose name is evading uh, me right Bob now. Corker. Bob Corker. Uh, and we've seen it a lot with anti-Trump conservatives. I'm thinking here of Elliot Cohen, uh, Jennifer Rubin, Michael Gerson, even Charles Krauthammer on occasion on Fox. Um, people who say, look, Trump is not a conservative. He's something else. A conservative has respect for institutions, for the rule of law, especially for the Constitution. And Trump is, has none of those things, so they don't consider him a conservative. And I learn a lot from their perspective. I'm not a conservative myself, but I find myself paying a special attention to that, looking for the people in our own time who are willing to speak up even when it's unpopular. Do you think that, and you say you're optimistic about this, that this will have, over time, will have an effect. I, I say, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to share your optimism um, because, you know, Senator Flake, to take him as an example, he decided not to run because Trumpism is is pretty rampant in Arizona in the Republican Party. It looked, looked like he was not going to survive a primary. It's relative optimism. I came, I'm coming out of the depths of despair last November after Trump was elected. Um, two things, three things really give me optimism about our country right now. First is we are a very resilient country. Um, we have bounced back from worse, and I think we'll bounce back from this situation. Second, uh, the Founding Fathers gave us a pretty good framework the Constitution. And it's interesting that a lot of Trump's frustrations have come from banging into the Constitution, not understanding how the U.S. government is designed to work by the Founding Fathers to have three independent and co-equal branches of government. He seems to think that when the President tells the Congress to do something, that they work for him. Well, they don't. Under the Constitution, they work for the people who elected them. And it's their job to work as a separate branch of government. Likewise, the judiciary has surprised Trump by saying, no, you can't do that. You're not king. So that's the second thing that, intrigued, that, that has pleased me and made me more optimistic. And the third thing that I simply didn't expect is the utter incompetence of Donald Trump as an executive. I had sort of bought some of this hype about he's a successful executive, the more I watch him, the more I think this guy doesn't know how to run anything. He 
he knows how to play an executive on TV, and now he's playing a president on TV and Twitter, but he really is not competent to run the government, and that gives me hope, because it means the less competent he is, the less damage he can do. If you think back to the movie The Godfather, Fredo, the weak-minded brother, wanted to be the, uh, the head of the family, mm-hmm. and was passed over for his smart younger brother, Michael. Uh, I feel kind of like um, if we gotten Michael Corleone uh, running the mafia, it would be really dangerous. But instead, we got Fredo running the country, uh, which perversely gives me some hope. <laughs> now, of course, if you're a Trump supporter, um, you uh, you know you you see uh, Senator Flake, Senator Corker is, is these are betrayals, right? And uh, and and that your man is going to be on the right side of history uh, if if you're if you're if you're for Trump. Uh, of course, the the danger there becomes uh, Trump has shown some. Uh, fondness for authoritarianism. There's another parallel to the 1930s. He's an extremely erratic man with a fondness for authoritarianism and with a dislike of the checks and balances that the Founding Fathers built into the Constitution, built into the way this country works, which, you know, again, gives me hope. I mean, we in this country have an operating manual in the Constitution. We have a list of the Bill of Rights amended to the Constitution that tells you what American behavior is. So when a congressional candidate slugs a reporter, that's un-American. It's a violation of the First Amendment. Or when a university student prevents a guest speaker from speaking on the campus, that's also un-American. And I think we need to speak up about both things and respect the Constitution, respect the Bill of Rights, and to say people who support the Bill of Rights need to do so across the board. If you support the Second Amendment, which a lot of people in this country do, you have an obligation to support the First Amendment as well. I'm telling people right now, anything that happens to the First Amendment under Trump is going to happen to the Second Amendment down the road. So people need to be careful about uh, undercutting the First Amendment and people's rights for the First Amendment, because it will happen later, I think, uh, to people's gun rights if they're not careful. Some people on the left who may be uh, nodding vigorously at what you've said uh, 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 may stop nodding when I when I uh, point out that you have uh, talked about. I've been reading some things. You've uh, talked about the fact that the, the First Amendment. Um, we need to be careful on the left as well, right? Uh, that uh, we do, uh, and I think the. Um, I mean, I actually think the biggest political problem in this country is not Donald Trump; it's the Democratic Party. I don't understand why the Democratic Party is so quiet. Um, they lost an election to a very weak candidate, yet there's no change in their congressional leadership. You still see Nancy Pelosi and Charles Schumer, uh, who seem out of touch with a lot of the sentiments in this country. Uh, Hillary Clinton, as a candidate, seemed more comfortable with Wall Streeters than she was with steel workers. Uh, we need to have the Democratic Party, a presidential candidate who doesn't have a personal foundation, who doesn't act and live like a multimillionaire. It's okay for the Republican Party to be in bed with Wall Street. That's a natural part of the Republican Party. It's always been there, and it's not inherently contradictory for them. It's not good for the Democratic Party to be in bed for Wall Street. It's not good for the party itself, but it's not good for the country because what we saw in the last election was whether Trump won or Hillary Clinton won, Wall Street won. In many ways, I fear that right now, we don't live in a democracy, we live in an oligarchy. We have two different political parties, but we have one oligarchy, which is to say, ruled by rich people. Rich people and their money count much more elections right now than individual votes do. And that's not American, and we need to do something about that. What about the um, you know the, the protests we see happening the uh, the, the marches Charlottesville for example uh, some on the the left um, I, I see and by their actions and, and by their words are saying that uh, the the new fascism needs to be opposed not only by words but also uh, by violence. I think that's un-American. Uh, I think people have an absolute right under the First Amendment to express their opinions. Uh, and I think anybody who uh, opposes free speech is my enemy. And I am willing to support the right of people to make the most ignorant, 
repugnant, even racist statements. Under the First Amendment, they have the right to do so. I totally disagree with those sorts of statements. But that's the test of the First Amendment. Now, Jimmy Fallon doesn't need First Amendment protections. It's repugnant speech, ugly speech, appalling speech. That needs First Amendment protection. That's where the real test of, that, of those laws are. And so uh, people who say that we should use violence to um, oppose right-wing and fascist and Nazi, pro-Nazi people, uh, I am totally against that, and I will march against them, not with them. Let's take a break. When we come back more with Thomas Ricks, his new book is Churchill and Orwell, The Fight for Freedom. It's a dual biography of uh, two men he says were essential in uh, preserving uh, or pointing the West Compass toward freedom as it's due north in critical times of the 1930s and 1940s. And uh, obvious parallels to today. We'll uh, talk, continue to talk about this following this break. Biological research coming to life at Utah State University. USU entomologist Zach Portman and Terry Griswold recently described nine newly identified desert bee species living in the American Southwest. Unexpected finds include curious ant-like males of two of the species, which are completely different in appearances from their mates. The scientists surmised the bees' unique forms could indicate they spend a lot of time in the nest. Though not major pollinators for food crops, the bees play a key role in natural ecosystems. This segment of Coming to Life is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in the sciences and mathematics. Details at usu.edu science. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, and we have with us Thomas Ricks. His new book is Churchill and Orwell, The Fight for Freedom. Thomas Ricks says uh, that in words and deeds, uh, these two men uh, were some of the most important people in British history for having the vision and courage to campaign tirelessly against the totalitarian threat from both the left and the right. In a crucial moment, he writes, they responded first by seeking the facts of the matter, seeing through the lies and obfuscations, then acted on their beliefs. And uh, parallels, of course, to today. We're uh, talking about this with Thomas Ricks for the hour. You can join us at 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Thomas Ricks, I want to treat a couple of key moments for George Orwell and and uh, Winston Churchill that you uh, treat in the, in the book, so maybe starting with Orwell. Um, he went off, uh, I think, first he was going to be a journalist uh, to cover the Spanish Civil War. He uh, soon joined the fight, and as we've mentioned, he was uh, shot in the neck, thought he was going to die, survived, came back to... Uh, to England and was very distressed about how this was being reported on the left and the right. Yeah, and for anybody who's concerned about fake news or charges of fake news, this is a very interesting episode to look at. Uh, As you say, Churchill wounded returns to England in mid-1937, and he sits down and reads all the papers, British papers, left and right, to see how they've covered this war that he has just seen and participated in. And he's shocked. Uh, he's not surprised by the right, because he is a, is a leftist. Uh, he had expected the right wing to be misleading and to omit facts. But then he turns to the left wing newspapers, and he's shocked to find they are equally misleading, they, that there are entire battles that they pretend never happen, while they pretend that soldiers who never heard a shot fired in anger are somehow war heroes. And this really concerns him. And he sits down and thinks about his own beliefs. And he winds up saying, you need to be able to break with your own side when they are not telling the facts. He really comes to believe that individual freedom is the beginning of liberty. It begins at the atomic level. The right of the individual to perceive and to trust their own perceptions. That is to say, I think the sky is blue, and even if the government tells me the sky is red, or the police insist the sky is 
is green, I have the right to believe my own perceptions. And he, he carries this through from the Spanish Civil War into his book 1984, when the key moment is when his hero in the book, remember the hero is named Winston, um, his hero Winston is being tortured, uh, and he, he keeps on saying, if you have the right to look at your four fingers being held up and say that's four, that's the beginning of liberty. By the end of the book, of course, he's been tortured into saying, if you say it's five fingers, I'll say it's five fingers, and I will believe it, whatever you want. Um, his, his right to individual perception is destroyed. Yeah, Orwell becomes, he becomes pretty fierce about this, right, increasingly over his life. Yeah, um, and he surprises the left a little bit with his insistence that the individual is where liberty has to begin, that it can't come from a political party, it can't come from a government, uh, and you must distrust all power, whether on the left or right. He once wrote that he distrusted anything he read in a magazine or newspaper or heard on the radio, uh, but especially when it came from someone in political power. He believed, I think correctly, that political power corrupts thinking. You have to be very careful of it. Anybody who's interested in this subject of fake news uh, is in for a real treat. If they go and find online, you can get the whole thing. Orwell's essay called Politics and the English Language, which for my money is one of the best things ever written about politics, but also one of the best things ever written about writing. Mm. In fact, uh, when I hire a researcher, there are two things I ask them to read before they come to work. One is Orwell's essay, Politics in the English Language, and the other is E.B. White's little book called The Elements of Style. Mm. One thing you write that uh, Orwell and Churchill have in common is their passion for language, right? And uh, and uh, insistence on... on um, on, on good writing. They... Clear, strong prose. They're very different stylists. Now, one of the fun things about this book is how different they are. Uh, you know, Churchill's a bon vivant. He, he likes wearing t- tailored pink silk underwear. Uh, Churchill's an ascetic, self-denying guy. Uh, I mean, Orwell's an ascetic, self-denying guy. Uh, Churchill is famously a big drinker once came to breakfast at the British Embassy in Cairo during World War II and asked his hostess for a carafe of white wine with his breakfast. And she kind of raised her eyebrows and said, he said, don't worry, ma'am, I've already had two whiskey sodas. <laughs> uh, Orwell, by contrast, during World War II, comes home from work one day to his apartment in London, and his wife very nicely has left uh, dinner for him. And she's also left a bowl of boiled eels for the cat's dinner. He um, absentmindedly eats the cat's dinner instead of his own. <laughs> this is a guy who's not paying a lot of attention to personal comfort, had terrible lungs, probably tuberculosis for much of his life, yet insisted on chain-smoking, hand-rolled, unfiltered cigarettes. Mm. Uh, so they're very different guys, but they come down to that same two same points that I think go together. Number one, Good, clear writing is essential and goes hand-in-hand with good, clear thinking. And number two, we must pay attention to the individual liberty. That's where freedom begins. Mm. I want to read this uh, paragraph. This is very striking. This is from the the, the book, uh, Thomas Rick's book, Churchill and Orwell, Fight for Freedom. Um, and uh, this uh, is George Orwell. He's come back from—he's he's witnessed the uh, Spanish Civil War um, firsthand— then he sees how it's being reported, uh, quoting George Orwell, I saw great battles reported where there had been no fighting and complete silence where hundreds of men had been killed. I saw troops who had fought bravely denounced as cowards and traitors and others who had never seen a shot fired hailed as the heroes of imaginary victories. I saw newspapers in London retailing these lies and eager intellectuals building emotional superstructures over events that had never happened. So I was reading that, I, my mind went immediately to today. Yeah, in fact, I went immediately to Fox News, uh, which strikes me as an entire organization, uh, I believe, built on falsehood. Uh, and it's striking to watch um, this sort of culture of lying that I think they have coming out in the series of sexual harassment suits that, it, that involve them. I want to immediately say it's also clear that sexual harassment is not 
a, an ideological issue. We see it on the left as well as the right. We're seeing a lot of it come out of Hollywood and even out of the media right now. Um, so <laughs> took me off on that, that tangent there a bit. Um, but fake news is not a new problem, and it seems to me that Orwell is one of our best guides on how to hack your way through the thickets of fake news to figure out the truth. This is the model that I think both Churchill and Orwell offer us as a kind of a way to get through our current situation. They both thought about their principles long and hard. They knew what their principles were. Then they worked hard to figure out the facts of the situation. And then they applied their principles to those facts to figure out the way forward. That's one reason I entered the book with Martin Luther King, who struck me very much as being in George Orwell's tradition, but also in Churchill's tradition. If you go back and read King's wonderful letter from the Birmingham jail, uh, it strikes me as a modern version of George Orwell, a very clear-minded approach to the facts and what to do about them. But, of course, King was a political leader, not just a writer, and so in that way resembles Churchill. Uh, as much as he does Orwell, and in fact the emphasis he gives to individual liberty and the Constitution and the rule of law in that letter remind me of Churchill a lot, too. I wonder if you could expand on that. It's uh, As you write, uh, it's uh, most people, when confronted with a crisis, um, the first response is to avoid and so you say that what Martin Luther King Jr. was doing in that letter, was, first of all, was, uh, America, please see you know, the, the nose on your face. Please see the problem. Yeah. It's really striking that he sits down and he says, it's not, he's not trying to say, everybody's wrong and I'm right and here's why. He just says, let's look at the facts of the matter. The fact of the matter is I am sitting here in jail because I have asked the U.S. government to follow through on its promise that we black people have rights in this country. I am in jail for saying, give us our civil rights, that we are said to have, enforce those. And he says the fact of the matter is that Birmingham is the most segregated city in America. The fact of the matter is that the police in Birmingham are used to enforce that segregation and the denial of civil rights that the law says we have. So your law is at odds with your law enforcement. You people have a contradiction you need to figure out here. It's a very straightforward, logical essay, and a beautiful piece of writing, too. I, I, I hold it up there as one of the great American documents. So you say that uh, Orwell and Churchill uh, give us a sort of a blueprint, a, a way forward on this. Um, we, I think we all agree this is a, a major issue of our times. Uh, um, alternative facts, uh, you know, um, fake news, this, this whole phenomenon. What would you say, the, the bullet points on what, uh, what is the way forward? Well, as I said, I think the way forward is have your principles, think seriously about them, determine what the facts are, and then apply your principles to those facts. The, the other thing I would add to that is pay attention to people willing to criticize their own sides. It's very easy to criticize your political opposition. It's another thing to be willing to criticize your own side. We've seen that in some Republican senators recently. Uh, I don't think we've seen enough of it uh, in, in the Democratic Party. People willing to criticize and say we need a different way forward or we need to rethink our approach here. Uh, what I would like to see is a Democratic candidate for president who is not so comfortable with Wall Street, who, who seems more and acts more from Main Street, someone who does not have their own personal foundation, uh, who does not seem to represent the American oligarchy. Uh, I have not seen that candidate yet, but I do think we will see candidates like that emerge. Let's take another break. When we come back more with Thomas Ricks, his uh, new book, very timely book. It's uh, Even though it is about the 1930s and 40s, um, and it's titled Churchill and Orwell, The Fight for Freedom. More following this break. Arts reporting on Utah Public Radio is supported by the Office of the Executive Vice President and Provost, celebrating USU's Year of the Arts. 
American veterans returning to Vietnam have found devastating effects of the war still present. Some families actually have children uh, in which all of them are afflicted by one kind of birth defect or another related to Agent Orange. I'm Sarah McConnell. Join me for With Good Reason. Wake up with good reason tomorrow at 4 a.m. on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our guest for the hour is Thomas Ricks. His book is Churchill and Orwell, The Fight for Freedom. You're welcome to join the conversation by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Uh, Thomas Ricks, uh, you have a, a very interesting perspective. I, I saw a famous speech of Churchill's in a new light uh, through your eyes and I wonder if you could talk about this. This is the famous uh, speech, uh, I think from 1940. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Um, th- this was, of course, very influential and, uh, and countered uh, what many people wanted to do, which was to accommodate Hitler, right, to, to continue appeasement. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard for us to understand the context of that speech and how emotionally full it was, the power of that speech. What he's doing there in that speech, the section you read, is describing a fighting retreat from the beaches to the landing fields to the towns to the hills. That is, from the southern coast of England back inland and eventually back to the hills uh, of western England and Wales. Uh, he is imagining how this would happen. He is talking about German invasion in very real terms. And, of course, they, had, they thought that they w- would be invaded. In fact, a warning was sent out in September of 1940 that the invasion was about to happen within hours. A formal warning was sent out. Um, and what he is saying is we are going to do this rather than enter into peace settlements. A lot of British people, especially among the aristocracy and even in his own cabinet in May and June 1940, thought that the smart money was on a peace settlement. And this is something I try to emphasize in the book. Be careful of the smart money, the clever opinion, the people who say, oh, this is the smart thing to do and this is why. That was what people were saying in England in May and June 1940, which is, look, we can't fight the Germans. They're much stronger than we are, and nobody else in Europe is going to join us, especially after Denmark and Belgium and um, the Netherlands and then France have fallen. Spain and Italy are already fascist. Nobody is with us. We can't fight this guy. And Churchill says, yes, we can, and we will. And eventually... America will come in and join us. He knows he can't defeat Germany on his own, but he knows that England can hold out. And if it does hold out long enough and stave off an invasion, that eventually the Americans might come to the rescue. And that's basically Churchill's plan for war. Mm. And as you point out, um, I hadn't seen this before in the speech, he is, he is outlining his plan, right? Including, uh, he, he mentions the New World. The New World will come in, it'll essentially save us. Um, but until then, it, it might get pretty bleak, but we're, we're going to keep going. Yeah, and it actually leads to this very odd moment uh, for Americans. When Pearl, Hab- Herber- I'm sorry, when Pearl Harbor happens in December 1941, Churchill is elated. He hears about it and he says, we've won the war. That's great. If the Americans are in, in World War II, we will win now. And basically, what's interesting is after that, he doesn't do a lot in in the war. His World War II that made Churchill famous, that made him a great man, in in which he basically, I think, himself saved Western civilization, that's all 1940 and 1941. After America enters the war, he only gives a couple of memorable speeches in the remainder of the war. For him, the big fight's over. And in fact, if you sit down and look at a volume of Churchill's greatest speeches, all the ones we remember, about we will fight them on the beaches, about um, this was their finest hour, 
Uh, all those phrases are all from 1940. He doesn't have a great rest of the war, 42, 43, 44, 45. Uh, and in fact, he's rather put out after 44, when the, after the D-Day invasion. The Americans kind of start shunting the British aside. The American attitude is, look, you know, we're in charge now. We're running the war. And that just shocks the British because they have looked upon the Americans as kind of the naive younger brothers that are going to guide through the world. And after a couple of years of doing that, the Americans say, okay, we've got it, bye. And he realizes at the end of the war that not only has Britain lost its empire, it has lost its position as a great power, that the world is now going to be run by the Russians and the Americans. And it, it cast him into a deep depression when he realizes that. The interesting thing is that... Um, Orwell has a very similar view, and in fact, Animal Farm grows partly out of Orwell's recognition that the Russians are now a great power. Mm. Uh, you mentioned earlier in the program the great man theory of history is uh, largely on the outs, but uh, as, as we think about uh, Churchill 1940, um, I, I don't know. I, I, what do you think? Uh, things would have gone very differently if Churchill hadn't been there? If Winston Churchill had not existed, uh, the prime minister would have been Lord Halifax, who in fact was the choice of the Conservative Party and the choice of the British king. But the Labour Party said, no, uh, we will not be in a government with Halifax, and they knew they needed a national coalition government. So to the disappointment of the king, Halifax said, no, I can't be prime minister and it would, then Churchill became the obvious choice. But if Churchill had not been there, if Halifax had been prime minister, Halifax almost certainly would have entered into peace negotiations around the time of Dunkirk, late May 1940, and there would have been a peace settlement sometime that summer. Uh, it was Churchill's, uh, Churchill's refusal, absolute refusal, to have any peace negotiations that really stiffened the British cabinet and stiffened the British government and uh, got the British public to resolve to resist an invasion, even if it occurred. Uh, so I think, yeah, that was one time when the existence of one person made a crucial difference, not only in British history, but in world history. We have an email uh, come in to upraxcess at gmail.com. You can as well. Uh, another uh, seven or eight minutes left with Thomas Ricks, whose book is... Hey, now that we're going to email and, um, yeah. and phone calls, I just want to mention also, I have all these uh, Utah roots people may recognize. Okay. Um, I am named, Thomas E. Ricks, I am named for the, a guy who was sheriff of Cache County in the 19th century, uh, Thomas E. Ricks, who later moved up to Idaho and founded Rexburg on the west slope of the Tetons, where you used to have Ricks College, which unfortunately now has become, I think, BYU North. The, right. I, I much prefer it was a Ricks College. When it was Ricks College, yes. I wondered, I, I wondered about that. I, I was Googling you to get a, a bio we could use, uh, typed in Thomas E. Ricks, and, of course, you come up and also... Your forebear, Thomas E. Ricks of Ricks College. Yeah, if you go on Wikipedia under the disambiguation, it gives me and my great uncle or great great uncle. Oh, interesting, interesting. So you you do have so Utah roots? Yes, in fact, if you go up uh, east of Logan, over towards Idaho, I can't remember the uh, root name, but at the t at the top of the pass, almost there's a spring named Ricks Spring. Unfortunately, the Utah Department of Transportation has an R-I-C-K apostrophe S. It is not a spring that belonged to Rick. It is named for Thomas E. Ricks. I wish they would fix it. Okay, well, we'll put the word out there. I think I've been to Rick Springs, so uh, remove the apostrophe if you're listening, uh, Department of Transportation. Uh, so here's the email from Glenn. Glenn says, hello, about criticizing one's own party or like identifying political ideologies, what can be said of Bernie Sanders' movement, especially in light of the current schism within the Democratic Party between legacy Democrats and the Bernie-crats? Excellent topic for today, says Glenn. It's a good question. Um, I, I did not, I was not a fan of Bernie Sanders. Um, I did think he was correct in a couple of things. I loved his line in which he said, Congress doesn't regulate Wall Street, Wall Street regulates Congress. Uh, 
But I think it is time for a new generation of leaders. I'm relatively old. I'm 62. I would like to see this whole generation of Democratic leaders move on, Schumer, Pelosi, and Sanders. I would like to see a new generation of Democratic leaders emerge, and I hope that the presidential candidate that the Democratic Party puts out in a couple of years is somebody in their 40s. Uh, do you, uh, you have any examples? Uh, that's kind of the problem, isn't it? It's, uh, it's the, these, this generation of leaders has been in for so long, It's uh, maybe the bench is a little thin, but there, I'm sure there are some people out there. I think they will emerge. I think they'll emerge at the state level. Um, but I think it will be even a name we don't even know right now. Remember, um, Barack Obama had only been in the Senate a couple of years, had never been in the House of Representatives when he began running for president. And people said a guy with a name like Barack Obama is going to run for president. Uh, But he succeeded. And I'm hoping that we'll see someone more like that emerge than the current bunch of old war horses that we have in 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 the Congress. I would hate to see Biden and Clinton and people like that dominate the next round of, of the Democratic primaries. I want to uh, turn to Churchill and Orwell and talk about uh, maybe the you know the, the later years. In the case of Orwell, it's not too not too many years. Uh, he died fairly young, um, and the continuing price perhaps paid for being contrarian for you know speaking truth to, to power. These admirable qualities that you extol, and that that you know, I think most people looking back extol and see, see the uh, effects of 1984, for example, and the effects that uh, Churchill had during that critical time. Maybe uh, starting with uh, Churchill, he was at the end of the war. He was he was dumped as prime minister, for example. Yeah, uh, people forget this. Um, you know, all the movies about Churchill are about 1940. Uh, there's one coming out soon called um, Darkest Hour. We just had the movie Dunkirk, which was very good, by the way. Um, but nobody talks about Churchill in 1945. People forget, as you say, that the British public dumped him even before World War II was over in the Pacific. In July 1945, he stood for election and was shocked when he was defeated by the Labor Party. Clement Attlee takes over. Uh, and he begins a fairly rapid decline. He, does, he did put out a great series of memoirs on World War II. He's the only leader from World War II to write his memoirs, you know, from Stalin, Mussolini, Hitler, Roosevelt, who were um, the, the uh, Hirohito or the Japanese emperor. None of them write memoirs. So his memoirs really stand out. They're not always historically accurate, uh, but they're incredibly interesting, especially Volume 1 and Volume 2. They begin to go downhill as he declines in the last four volumes, but certainly one of the great documents of our of our time. Uh, he then, uh, Churchill has a very unfortunate sec- second round as prime minister in the early 50s. He kind of wants to prove he can get elected. He gets elected. He's too old. He's tired. He's had some strokes has a lousy time, and people kind of forget that he had this bad term as prime minister in the early 50s. The fascinating thing to me about uh, these guys is Orwell's ascendancy after he dies. Orwell is not that well-known when he dies in January 1950. Uh, He's not at all as famous as he is now. He barely sold, except for his last two books, very much during his own lifetime. But he has sold millions and millions of books since then. And now he kind of stands as a world figure. Uh, At the end of the book, I talk about how dissidents in Eastern Europe, in the Soviet Union, and in the Muslim world have all been inspired by his account of how governments abuse power and how they should be opposed. Hmm. Just a final, just a couple of minutes left. Uh, a big theme, of course, is authoritarianism and democracy. In the 1930s, you point out that uh, some people in liberal democracies were saying, uh, well, maybe democracy has run its course. Perhaps we need to choose one of the you know two forms of totalitarianism. Yeah, and I think the great thing about these two guys is they say, no, don't give up on democracy. Be 
because that's the beginning of freedom. That's, that's where liberty comes from. Uh, I found myself going back to read fundamental documents. I, men- I mentioned the Constitution earlier on. Just the other day, I was going back and rereading the Declaration of Independence, which is a marvelous document written by, drafted by Thomas Jefferson, uh, and a really good example of good writing, too. People tend to forget how strongly written the Declaration of Independence is. I'm even reaching back further. I was going back and reading Aristotle on politics, and I found it very inspiring because Aristotle is very good in describing Trump. Uh, he describes oligarchs as rich people who think they should govern because they're rich, who think that's the only thing that matters, that morals and ethics don't matter. They're very indisciplined people, he says, oligarchs, because they have never had to listen to anybody to any rules because they're rich. But because they can't listen to people, because they lack discipline, their terms in office tend to be short. So I think there's a lot of inspiring stuff if we simply keep an eye on the long term and pay attention to fundamental principles. And we're luckier than a lot of other countries because our fundamental principles are written down in the Declaration of Independence, in the Constitution, and especially in the Bill of Rights. We have an operating manual for this country. Right now, we have a president who doesn't like that operating manual, but that operating manual, I think, is much stronger than he is. Just about a minute left. I wanted to get this in. This is from your afterward. You write, in most places and most of the time, liberty is not the product of military action. Rather, it is something alive that grows or diminishes every day in how we think and communicate, how we treat each other in our public discourse, in what we value and reward as a society and how we do that. Of course, that is the challenge for our time. But that's a good point to end on, because I think it's important not just to listen to what people say, but how they say it, and how they listen to the other side. We should reward decent discourse. We should be willing to listen to the other side. In my church, I learn a lot from listening to people who have very different opinions than I do. Uh, And I listen respectfully, not just so I can wait and make my argument, because I know that we're all fallible, and I might be very wrong about something, and they might be very right. If you have that faith in each other, that's the beginning of civil discourse. That is a good place to end it. Thomas Ricks has been our guest. He is author most recently of Churchill and Orwell, The Fight for Freedom. Uh, Thank you so much. You're welcome. Glad to be on. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Greg Dalton. On the next Climate One, what convinces people the climate is changing? Only campaigns work. Only the repetition of simple messages changes public opinion and affects the brain. We also learn why facts alone don't change minds. Fact and reason and rationality have to be integrated with emotional intelligence. Selling the science of climate change on the next Climate One. Join us Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR, Logan. KUSK, Vernal. KUSL, Richfield. KUST, Moab. KCEU, Price. KUSU, FM, Logan. Also heard at upr.org.